Let's open up our Bibles to 1 John chapter 2, beginning here at verse 7. I write no new commandment to you, but an old commandment which you have had from the beginning. The old commandment is the word which you heard from the beginning. Now I want you to notice something, that verse 7 doesn't tell us at all what the commandment is. It just tells us that it's an old commandment. That it's a commandment that we have had from the beginning. Now, sometimes it's a little difficult for us to understand exactly what beginning it is that John is talking about. In the beginning can refer to the beginning of creation. It can refer to eternity past. But I think John has a different meaning here. I think John, when he says that this is not a new commandment, but it's an old commandment, something that we've had from the beginning, John has in his mind a commandment that began with Jesus. That as long as there have been Christians, as long as there have been followers of Jesus Christ, they have heard this commandment and they have sought to take it to heart. This is one of the basics of the Christian faith, one of the elementary things in our Christian life. My friends, might I tell you that if we don't get right what we're talking about this morning, there's really no point in going to square two. This is square one. This is something basic and fundamental to the Christian life. It's, a new, it's an old commandment. It's not a new one. It's something basic from the beginning. But at the same time, let's look at verse 8. He says, again, a new commandment I write to you, which thing is true in him and in you, because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. Now, I think it's curious, speaking of the same commandment. John can say at the one hand, it's old, it's been from the beginning. On the other hand, he says it's new. I don't know if you're like me, maybe scratching your head a little bit, saying, what are you talking about, John? It's a commandment that's old and it's new at the same time. What does he mean by saying that it's a new commandment? Well, I believe that John had very fresh and very strong in his memory the words of Jesus. Because not only were those words precious when he first heard them, but he heard them with his own ears, and he heard the Word of God being spoken by the Son of God through the very personality of God, and it couldn't help but make a strong impression on him. And so when he calls this commandment that he has for us, that he'll describe in the future verses, a new commandment, I think I know what he's referring to. I think he's referring back to some special words that Jesus spoke to his disciples on the very night that he was betrayed. Some words that Jesus spoke to his disciples when he was getting ready to wash their feet. He had washed their feet. He had served them as a servant. He had ministered to them and shown them his love. They had had the last supper together and Judas had left. And then Jesus spoke something very powerful to his disciples. And I want you to take a look at this new commandment with me. Turn in your Bibles. Keep a finger there on 1 John 12. But turn leftward in your Bibles to John chapter 13. Now, of course, when we say the gospel of John chapter 13 and the first letter of John chapter 2, we're talking about the same author, aren't we? The same John the Apostle wrote both of these. And you can tell that these words were just ringing in his mind. The Gospel of John, chapter 13, beginning at verse 31. So when he had gone out, and that's referring to Judas, when Judas had gone out, Jesus said, Now the Son of Man is glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and glorify him immediately. 
Little children, I shall be with you a little while longer. You will seek me. And as I said to the Jews, where I am going, you cannot come. So now I say to you. Now please look carefully at verse 34 and 35 with me. Look at it carefully as I read it. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another as I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this all will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Jesus called this commandment that he gave to his disciples, this commandment to love one another, a new commandment. Now let me ask you a question. In what sense was this a new commandment? Was it that the Bible had never told anybody up to this point to love one another? No. Matter of fact, the Old Testament is filled with commands that we should love and do loving things towards one another. The whole idea of you shall love your neighbor as yourself, that didn't start with the New Testament. That's in the Old Testament. So then how can Jesus say that this commandment is a new commandment? Please notice verse 34 again. Look at it carefully. He says, a new commandment I give to you that you love one another. Now that part isn't new. That's old. But the next part of verse 34, that's new. He says, as I have loved you, that you also love one another. How did Jesus love us? Perfectly and completely. And where did he demonstrate that love? On the cross. The commandment is new, not in its essence of what we should do, but in the example that Jesus showed us, illustrating the full extent of the love that we should give to other people. Now, you might have felt comfortable when Jesus said, love one another. Oh, yeah, love one another. Well, I love everybody, don't I? How about this? Love one another just as Jesus loved you. Now you get kind of a lump in your throat, don't you? Because there's people that you love in your life, or you say you love them, but you don't really love them like Jesus has loved you. And that's why Jesus showed us the great extent of God's love on the cross. Not the only reason, but one of the great reasons was so that he could show us the measure of love that he wants to work in us to other people. And the cross shows us all the dimensions of God's love. It shows us that God's love is wide enough to include every human being. That God's love is long enough to last throughout all eternity. That God's love is deep enough to reach to the most guilty sinner. And that God's love is high enough to take us to heaven. That's how big the love of God is. That's the kind of love that God wants us to have for one another. Now, if Jesus would have just left it at verse 34, it would be challenging enough. But Jesus had to go on and say verse 35. Let's look at it together. Don't be crossing this one out of your Bible. He says, By this will all know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. You see why John says this is a new commandment, but it's also an old commandment. It's so basic. How are other people going to know that you are a disciple of Jesus Christ if you love other Christians? How are people going to know if they themselves are actually Christians if they love their brothers and sisters in Jesus Christ? My friends, that is the measuring stick. That is the standard that God puts before us for whether or not we can tell we are true Christians. 
Now, previously in 1 John, John has examined us according to the moral measure of our walk. And I'd like you to turn back to the book of 1 John, and we'll just take a look at those verses. Take a look at 1 John chapter 2, beginning at verse 3. He says, Now by this we know that we know him if we keep his commandments. He who says, I know him and does not keep his commandments is a liar and the truth is not in him. In other words, John says, I'm going to give you a measuring stick to tell whether or not you have a real relationship with God. And that measuring stick is your moral life. Do you obey the commandments of God? God says, don't steal. Are you a habitual thief? Then you don't know God. God says, honor him in the things that you do and in how you conduct yourselves. And if you have it as the habit of your life to not do those things, then you don't know God. And John just lays it out before us. He says, there's a moral measuring stick. Now, later on in this letter of 1 John, and we'll see this in coming weeks, John gives us another measuring stick. It's the measuring stick of truth. He says, if you really know God, then you believe certain truths about him. And here's the truth measuring stick. So we have the moral measuring stick. We have the truth measuring stick. Ah, but John, in the text we're looking at this morning, gives us a third measuring stick, doesn't he? And it's the measuring stick of love. Because it's a very easy thing for me to stand before you and tell you how much I love God. Oh, I love God. Oh, if you could only see how much love I have for God in my heart. Well, I bet I have more love for God than any of you in my heart. It's just so big. It's so great. Oh, how I love God. But you can't really see that, can you? I might just be bluffing. I might be deceived. I might be misinformed. But what you can see is how I love other people. And John says, Forget about this business of saying you can prove you love God by saying you love God. You prove you love God and that you have a real relationship with him by the way that we treat one another as Christians. Let's read on here in 1 John chapter uh, 2, beginning at verse 9. He says, he who says he is in the light and hates his brother is in darkness until now. You see, if I say, I'm a Christian, I'm in the light, I'm following after the Lord, but I don't love my brother, then I'm not in the light, I'm in darkness. Pretty straightforward, isn't it? Look at verse 10. He who loves his brother abides in the light, and there's no cause for stumbling in him. But he who hates his brother is in darkness and walks in darkness and does not know where he's going because darkness has blinded his eyes. Now, friends, just as our relationship to sin and obedience is a measure of our fellowship with God, so is our love for God's people. If we say that we're in the light, yet hate our brother or our sister, our claim to fellowship with God, because God is in the light, right? Well, if we claim we fellowship with a God who is in the light, but we don't love our brother or our sister, then our claim to that fellowship is hollow. You know, sometimes this is very challenging for us, isn't it? Because it's easy to think at times, you know, it would be pretty easy to be a Christian if it weren't for all the Christians. (laughs) You know, Lord, I don't have any troubles with you. It's all your other kids that I seem to have a problem with. And there's a lot of fights between siblings in the family of God, isn't there? And that's why just as much as a parent is concerned for their children, and parents, you know what I'm talking about, what gets under your skin just about more than anything? It's when your kids are fighting. 
You just can't stand it. Well, how do you think God in heaven looks down upon his family and when he sees his kids fighting and when he sees his kids harboring hatred in their hearts towards one another, well, it just breaks the heart of God. But not only does it break the heart of God, it breaks our own hearts, doesn't it? My friends, there are many, many Christians who live the life of the walking wounded because they've been scrippled by the scars that other Christians have put upon them. You've been hurt. You've been burned. Other Christians haven't reached out to you the way that they should. Other Christians haven't been loving or forgiving or they've cheated you or they've hurt you or they've gossiped about you or they've done something against you in some way. And you're hurt by it. You're pained by it. And maybe you've just decided that you're just going to draw back and you're not going to love the way that you should. My friends, can I tell you that, that if you do, you're doing that at your own peril You're going to separate yourself from God in the process. And before long, you're going to find yourself walking in darkness. You see, I've researched this text very carefully. I've looked at it in the original Greek. I've compared manuscripts. I went on the internet and did a manuscript search and searched all over the world through the computer libraries and looked looked as hard as I could for a loophole in this text. And friends, I just didn't see it. I mean, I wanted it to say... Um, He who says he's in the light and hates his brother, except if his brother has really burned him, then. I wanted to find an except. I wanted to see, well, except if I'm right and they're wrong. Except if I was doing it in the name of the Lord. Except, except. It's just not there, my friends. And if you're one of those people who likes making notes in your Bible, that's fine. But don't you dare write the word except there in verse 9. Because it's not in there. And my friends, if you've been burned, if you've been hurt by another Christian, if you've been wounded, and maybe this morning here, you're just, you're, you're practically bleeding because of the way you've been hurt by other Christians. And friends, I'm sorry. I'm sorry that that's happened to you. But the answer for you is not in drawing back. It's in reaching out in love. Because this is the measure which defines us as Christians. Do we love one another? Now, on the one hand, God has been very merciful in requiring this. Because I want you to notice that the measuring stick that he puts against us is not our love for people who aren't Christians. It's not our love for people who are not among the family of God. God didn't say, they'll know you're my disciples by the way you love your enemies, by the way you love the people who persecute you, by the way you love the people who want to put you to death for following Jesus Christ. He didn't say that. He says, look, all you have to do is love one another. Love your fellow Christians. Love your family. We should say thank you, God, for letting that be the measuring stick. But on the other hand, God has given us a particularly difficult measure, isn't it? Because we often, and perhaps rightly, expect much more from our Christian friends and associates. When we're hurt by another believer, when we feel betrayed by another believer, when we feel stabbed in the back by another believer, it can be all the more painful to endure because we tell ourselves, well, they're a Christian. They shouldn't have done this to me. And sometimes we feel more justified in harboring the bitterness and believing we can take hold of that hatred in our hearts and we feel more justified in doing it. And friends, we should not. Because can I just speak to you heart to heart for a minute about what I've learned in my own life? 
because I've been there too. I've been through experiences in my life where I feel that I've been hurt or betrayed or wounded by other Christians, and I've known the great pain of that. And at the time, while you're in the midst of it, it just seems terrible. You just feel awful. But my friends, as I look back on those times, and I'm just not saying this, this isn't just spiritual talk. I want you to know something from my heart to yours. I look back on those times now, and I thank God for them. Because I see things that God worked in my life and showed me of himself that I would not have seen any other way. And I see that God had a divine purpose for allowing that person to wound me. Now, it doesn't justify what they might have done to whatever extent it was wrong. And as time goes on, I usually see those people as less wrong and myself as more wrong. You know how that works, doesn't it? But my friends, even to whatever extent they were wrong, they have to deal with that before God. But I realized that God wasn't taking the afternoon off in heaven when that happened to me. That God allowed it to happen in my life for a purpose. And he wants to use it to fashion me, to to draw me closer to him, to shape me, to mold me. And just as the potter sometimes has to bring a sharp instrument against the, the, the clay to make it into the fashion he wants it to be, so God has allowed sharp instruments to come into my life and into your life. Perhaps God has allowed this sense of isolation to come into your life so that you would draw close to him and not to anyone else. But whatever God's purpose has been in this time in your life, embrace it. He hasn't allowed this to cripple you, but to bring something good into your life. And when you see the overarching hand and plan of God, then suddenly you can forgive other people. You you can release your heart from the bitterness that you've been harboring in them, and, and you can start to walk in the light of love instead of the darkness that hatred brings. My friends, this is for real. The point is plain. We can't miss what John is saying. Lose love, lose all. There's nothing left. My friends, you can do all the right things. You can believe all the right truths. But if there's not love for one another, then all is lost. John essentially, as we've spoken of before, has given us three tests to measure our Christian life against. There's the moral test, right? Your conduct. Then there's the truth test. Having right doctrine, right belief. Then there's the love test. And this morning, we're talking about the love test. My friend, you might be hurting your arm, patting yourself on your back, saying, well, you know, my life's pretty right before the Lord. You know, I mean, I've got good moral conduct. You say, I believe all the right things. You know, all my doctrinal T's are crossed and all my doctrinal I's are dotted. Boy, I got the right truth. My friends, you can have the right truth. You can have the right kind of life. But if you don't have love for your brothers, then all's lost. Each one of these uh, truths, each one of these measures, is like the legs on a three-legged stool. You can't cut one off and say, well, I don't need that leg. Look, I still got two left. Look, I can kind of balance funny on the stool for a while. No, you're just going to end up falling over. We don't have one to the exclusion of others. We have to love one another. Can I suggest two particular places or circumstances in which it's very difficult to love? The first very difficult place to love, I think, is when we're right in a situation. And we're always right, aren't we? (laughs) 
Well, when you're right and the other person is wrong, you can almost feel justified in holding on to your anger and your bitterness towards them. After all, you're right. Right? I mean, here, chapter and verse, I can show you, I'm right. My friends, you might be right, and you might win that battle and lose the war. Aren't you glad God didn't respond to us like that in heaven? See, lost humanity, rebelling against Him, God says, I'm going to send them all to hell. I'm right, and they're wrong. And you know what He is? God said, I'm going to love these wrong people. My friends, even if you are 100% right in the situation, and they're 100% wrong, which is never the case, but let's just pretend. Even if you're 100% right and they're 100% wrong, you still have to love. And you're only hurting yourself. Look at it in verse 11 again. But he who hates his brother is in darkness and walks in darkness and does not know where he's going because the darkness is blind at his eyes. You're bringing darkness and blindness into your life because you're holding on to the hatred towards your brother or your sister. You might say, I'm not holding on to hatred. I don't hate anybody. There's just some people that I like a lot less than other people. Look, let's be honest. Let's not mince words. There are people that we have bitterness and resentment and that we just need to forgive. And until we do that, we're bringing a measure of darkness into our life. And you might say, oh, well, good. I'm glad you clarified that, David, because I don't have any darkness in my life. I can see things just plain. I can see them real clearly. Oh, can you? I've never had this experience personally because I've never worn glasses, but I had people tell me that when their eyesight's going bad and before they've gone to the eye doctor, you know, they thought they could see pretty good. Yeah, I can make out things all right. Sure, yeah, that's all right. But then they go to the eye doctor and he makes all the measurements and he fills out the prescription and he puts the glasses on and then all of a sudden, wow, the whole world is open to him. It's like colors are brighter, things are sharper, everything's more clear. They never knew they could see so good. Maybe you're in that same state of blindness where you think everything's fine because the darkness has come upon you gradually. But you need to put away the hatred, put away the bitterness, put away the resentment so you can walk in the light and not be troubled by the darkness and the blindness that comes with it. Now, my friends, not only is it hard to love when we're right, but I think another place where we're particularly challenged on this point is in ministry. And I say this to you as a minister. Because sometimes... Uh, Some of the worst sins happen against love in the body of Christ by people who are in ministry. And this is how they rationalize it. Well, I know I walked all over that brother. I know I trampled all over that sister. But I'm doing the work of the Lord. Can't you see? God's hand is upon me. I'm doing God's work. So sure, there's scattered bodies all the way behind me. But I'm doing God's work. My friends, if you're really doing God's work, then you're going to do it in love. It doesn't mean you're perfect, but it means when you're doing God's work, you know, and you're carrying that board doing God's work, and you do the little Three Stooges routine where you turn and you just knock over four people, say, well, I'm carrying this board for the Lord. Well, yeah, put down the board and tell those people you're sorry and repent of it, and then pick it up and get on with the work of the Lord. My friends, it's very important for us to realize that being right doesn't free us from the obligation to love. Being in ministry doesn't free us from the obligation to love. We are stuck with this. We've got to love one another. 
And I think right now, this morning, the Lord's probably speaking to your heart about maybe somebody that you need to get right with. We'll do it. You don't know the darkness that can be cleared away in your life until you get this right with somebody else. Friends, let's come out of the darkness and come into God's beautiful light. Now, I know one thing that when we are living without this kind of love in our lives for other people that we should have, when we're walking towards other people, showing our hatred towards them either actively or passively, you know, you can hate somebody passively. Sometimes we think the only people we hate are the people we want to go up and punch in the nose. But if I hate you, I can show it just as well towards you by ignoring you, by acting like you don't exist. You can show hatred passively or aggressively, but either one is true. My friends, when we're walking in that hatred, when we're not walking in the kind of love God would have us in, I know that our spiritual growth is hindered. And that's what we're going to talk about in these next few verses, beginning at verse 12, where John speaks to us about spiritual growth. He says, I write to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven you for his name's sake. I write to you, fathers, because you have known him who is from the beginning. I write to you, young men, because you've overcome the wicked one. I write to you, little children, because you've known the father. I have written to you, fathers, because you have known him who is from the beginning. I have written to you, young men, because you are strong and the word of God abides in you, and you've overcome the wicked one. Now, please understand this, that John is sort of giving us three different levels of spiritual growth. One, he talks about being at the level of a child. One, he's talking about being at the level of a young adult. And the next is being at the level of a father. It's sort of like beginning, intermediate, and advanced. And John's saying everybody's at some different level in their spiritual growth. Some people are just starting out. And there's nothing wrong with starting out. You're just a child. And we all begin our Christian life as little children, don't we? It's not to be despised. It's a precious thing. And God has his little children in his kingdom. Those who are fresh coming into the kingdom of God and need to grow up into the things of the Lord. And what does John say to the little children? Look at verse 12. He says, I write to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven you for his name's sake. Well, what does he want to emphasize? He says, hey, little children, please remember, think about this, you're forgiven. I think that's a precious thing to say to a little child. Because when we first come to the Lord, we should have it deeply impressed on our hearts, the joy of our forgiveness. My friends, is it precious to you that your sins are forgiven? It should be. I mean, do you sometimes just get excited about the fact that you're forgiven? Maybe you don't anymore. Maybe that's kind of passe for you. Well, yeah, you know. That was a long time ago I got excited about that. My friends, you just need to realize how bad you are and how great God's forgiveness is, and then you'll get all excited all over again about His forgiveness. I mean, it really is a tremendous thing that God has forgiven us. And it's a precious thing for little children to hear, especially little children spiritually. You know why? Because this is what's great about forgiveness. Is that the little child spiritually is just as forgiven as the Father. Do you know forgiveness does not come by degrees in the Christian life? You don't become more forgiven as you grow in the Lord? No. When you first come to Jesus, you're just as forgiven as you're ever going to be. You might be a Christian for five days and you're just as forgiven as Billy Graham or some other spiritual giant. You're forgiven. Forgiveness does not come by degrees. It comes by a divine decree that says we're forgiven. And so we're forgiven, and John wants the little children to remember that. 
But then he speaks to the fathers. Look at verse 13. He says, I write to you fathers because you have known him who is from the beginning. You've known Jesus. You know him. You know Jesus. You have a relationship with him. It's for real. And just as much as there are little children among God's family, so there are fathers. And by this we mean men and women who have a strong, stable, spiritual walk, who have had the years of walking with God. And my friends, there's no substitute for years and years, decades and decades of walking close to Jesus Christ. You know, I know that in our own congregation, we've got some fathers. We've got some men and women who know what it's like to walk with Jesus through the decades. And there's no substitute. I just love being around a man who's walked with the Lord for 50 years. There's just something precious about that, the depth of that relationship. It doesn't come overnight. It's not easy. It's not quick. It's not a a thing that you get out of a microwave oven or a drive-through window. The spiritual depth is something that takes years. Notice what he says next in verse 13 to the young men. He says, I write to you, young men, because you've overcome the wicked one. The young men, those people in the intermediate stage of spiritual growth, well, they're the ones who are the battlers in the body of Christ, the fighters against wickedness. They're the ones who are out there advancing the kingdom of God, the most energetic, the hardest workers, and well, they should be. My friends, it's not the the young children we send to war. It's not the old men that we put on the front lines. It's the young men. So get out there and fight the battle. Do the work of the kingdom of God. We let the young men grow up, or excuse me, the young children grow up. We let the old men sort of run the battle from the, from the headquarters. But it's the young men who should be out there doing the work of advancing the kingdom of God. There's a responsibility in being a young man, so to speak, spiritually, isn't there? I think that's why some people want to sort of shirk their duty and try to act like spiritual children for as long as possible. You know, not want to grow up. You know, well, uh, I'm not really a, a young man yet spiritually. I'm, a, I'm just a little child. Well, how long have you been walking with the Lord? Oh, only ten years now. Brother, something's wrong. If you're just a young man, if you're just still a, a little child, I should say, after walking 10 years with the Lord, there's been some arrested development in your life, or maybe you're just trying to shirk your duty. Maybe you're like a draft dodger. You don't want to go to war. You don't want to fight the battles. You don't want to get busy for the kingdom of God. Maybe you're like a vagrant who won't work. You won't step out and do the work of the kingdom. And listen, it's fine if a little child doesn't go to war. It's fine if a little child doesn't have a full-time job. We don't expect it of a 12-year-old, but of a 25-year-old, we do. There's a lot of talk these days about people getting in touch with their inner child. Some people need to get in touch with their inner adult and get about with the work of the kingdom of God. Stop trying to pass yourself off as a little kid. It's like you're trying to get the the discount at the movies, saying you're a student when you're 30 years old. No, get busy with the work of the kingdom of God. He goes on and he speaks to the little children again at the end of verse 13. And he says, I write to you, little children, because you have known the father. Isn't that precious? That's what a little child wants to know as his father. You know, you catch a child when they're little enough. And nowadays you've got to catch them pretty little to be like this. But their whole world is their father. Their father's just the greatest man in the world. Doesn't matter if you presidents, astronauts, professional athletes, it doesn't matter. Their dad is the greatest thing in the whole world. Their dad could beat Michael Jordan in basketball. 
Their dad's smarter than the smartest man in the universe. Their dad's just everything. And that's the kind of heart that a little child spiritually should have. It's them and God the Father. They're receiving the Father's love. They're just in love with God the Father. That's fitting for a little child spiritually. But then again, in verse 14, he speaks again to the fathers. Now check this out. This blows my mind. He says, verse 14, I have written to you, fathers, because you have known him who is from the beginning. Okay, you got that? Now go back to verse 13 and see what he said to the fathers the first time. I write to you, fathers, because you've known him who is from the beginning. John, you're wasting ink. Why are you repeating yourself? What, did you just like forget and catch yourself in the wrong line? Or what's going on here? No, no, no. He repeats it twice for emphasis. What is it that makes a man or a woman spiritually great, spiritually deep, spiritually in a high place as a father? It's knowing Jesus. And we might say, yeah, yeah, knowing Jesus. Yeah, that's fine. But isn't there more? I mean, these fathers know know Jesus, but shouldn't they go beyond that? My friends, there is no beyond. To know Jesus and to know him in his fullness, that's what gives a person spiritual depth and spiritual maturity. You know, I think of Paul, and can we just agree right now that the Apostle Paul was a spiritual father? Absolutely he was. In the book of Philippians, chapter 3, verse 10, he's talking about all his spiritual achievements, and he says, I regard every one of those spiritual achievements as just rubbish. They're trash. They're garbage. What I really want, Paul says, is that I may know him, as he says it in Philippians 3.10. There's Paul with more spiritual depth and, and weight than anybody in this room, probably all of us put together. And what's the passion of his heart? He just wants to know Jesus more. That's what marks somebody who's truly spiritually deep. And some people think that they need to go beyond that. Let's go beyond that to something deeper. My friends, you're not going beyond it. You took a wrong turn somewhere. You're not going on further with Jesus. You took a wrong, who knows where you're heading off if you think you're off beyond that. No, the fathers are marked by their knowledge of Jesus. And then finally, he says at the end of verse 14, I have written to you, young men, because you are strong, And the word of God abides in you, and you have overcome the wicked one. Again, the repetition of the idea indicates for us emphasis. Not only have the young men overcome the wicked one, but they've done it through the strength that comes to them through the word of God. They're spiritually strong because the word of God abides in them. It lives in them. Friends, I'm really happy that you're here this morning. It's great to see everybody so attentive and just, man, you're just tracking with me. It's just great. But I want you to know, just being here and just listening to the words I say, that does not mean that the Word of God is living in you. But if you take what the Word of God is saying to you this morning, and if you take it in your heart and you let it live in you, I guarantee you something, it will make you spiritually stronger. You can walk out of this room today spiritually stronger than when you walked in if you'll let God's Word live in you. And I trust, and I bet if we were here this morning passing out a survey, okay, check a box, little child, young man, or father. We'd probably get answers back. I'd probably look over the sheets. And first of all, probably nobody would check Father because you're all a humble group. And you would say, well, I don't want to put myself up that high. So probably nobody would check Fathers, even though I know there are some spiritual fathers here among us this morning. And then I'd look at the category little children. You say, I'm not going to check little child. David just slammed us for saying that we're little children. I'm not going to check that. I'll get in trouble with David. So you're not going to check that. Most of us would say, well, I'm in the middle. 
You know, I'm in the middle. I'm not a little child. I'm not a father. I'm right there as a young man. Well, my friend, if you're a young man in the Lord, then are you growing in strength? And if you are strong in the Lord, as he says you should be, look at it in verse 14. I have written to you, young men, because you are strong and the word of God abides in you. If you have this strength, then what are you doing with it? You know, some people have strength and they just don't do anything with it. I could never understand, you know, that that thing in the bodybuilding thing. We get all these muscles, just muscles everywhere, just incredible muscles. We didn't even know people had muscles. And they go out there and what do they do? They flex. There they are. Well, look, I mean, aren't you going to go pick up a building or a car or something like that? No, I'm just going to flex. You know, and it's like some people are like that spiritually. They've got all this strength and they're just flexing. Go out and use that strength for something. See what God would have you use it for, but, but don't despise either the way that the Lord would build that strength in you. My friends, God has a as a spiritual gym where he wants us to all work out and to develop our strength. You know what's written up on the wall in his gym? It says, I've read it there. It says, no pain, no gain. And God oftentimes will increase our strength spiritually by taxing us, by pressing us, by making us do things that we wouldn't normally do. And he builds up that spiritual strength in us, that along together with his word, and you're building up a strong believer who can go out and be a frontline Christian doing the work of advancing the kingdom of God. Friends, as I think about all this, we've we've got two things in front of us. We've got this great command to love, and we've got this measure of spiritual maturity that we have to measure ourselves against. And you know what I think ties it together both so beautifully? It's the guy who wrote it. I want you to think about John. Now, when John wrote this, what level of spiritual maturity do you think he was at? I think he was a father. Oh, no doubt in my mind. What spiritual maturity John had? Wouldn't you just love to have a conversation with John? I can't wait to get to heaven to talk to John, to talk to Peter, to talk to Paul. I just want, I I would just love to talk with these guys. What depth spiritually? But my friends, he was a father, but did he start out that way? No. Then you have John, this great apostle of love. Man, you meet John and you just know what it would be like to meet him. Just love everywhere. Just love, love. You just feel it. You'd shake his hand. You'd just go, man, this guy's just full of love. He loves me. The way he'd look you in the eye, just, you just have this feeling. This man is a man of love. Was he always like that? You know what they called John before they called him apostle? You know, John and his brother James went around and they had a little name for John and James. They called them the sons of thunder. And it wasn't because they were so nice. Because they had dispositions like thunder. Then again, John, I remember one time reading in the Gospel of Luke, John's walking outside of a town that had just rejected Jesus and been kind of cold to Jesus. And you know what John, Mr. Full of Love, says? Here he is, just Mr. Full of Grace and Compassion. Mr. Love. He says, Jesus, how about if we rain down fire from heaven on this town and kill them all for wiping you out or for rejecting you? And Jesus just shakes his head. I know what he thought. It doesn't say it in there, but I bet the first thing Jesus thought was, who does this guy think he is that he can call down fire from heaven? But then Jesus says, he says to John, John, you don't know where my heart's at. 
And just as much as John, we see him here writing this letter, letter. he's a spiritual father, but he didn't start out that way. He's a man full of love, but he didn't start out that way. God can take you from wherever you are at right now and bring you to that place of love and maturity that he wants you to be. But maybe there's an issue right now holding you back. Let's pray and ask God to settle it right now. Father, I come and I stand before these people and I pray for myself and I pray for all of them and ask, Lord Jesus, that you would uh, speak to our hearts this morning and that you would help us, Lord Jesus, to walk in love, first of all. We don't want to lose it, Lord. We don't want to be like the religious leaders in Jesus' day who had all their actions right, who had all their doctrine right, but they didn't have love. Lord, we just cry unto you and we ask, help us, help us, Lord. I pray that you'd help us right now with the people that you're just bringing before our hearts. Those difficult people, Lord, the people that we're right and they're wrong. Help us to love them, Lord. Help us to forgive. Help us to be free from bitterness. We don't want to walk in darkness anymore, Lord. We want to walk in the light. Father, whatever's keeping us from spiritual maturity, take it out of the way now. We know, Lord, that that's like telling a surgeon, just take away a cancer and it can be painful, but Lord, just take it. Because following after you is more precious to us than anything else. So we come simply, we come boldly. We ask that you do this in our lives, Lord, and we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.